From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour was made in 2002 when a political scientist named Rui Teixeira co-authored a book about the changing political coalitions in the United States. The book became a bestseller. It was called The Emerging Democratic Majority. Teixeira looked at the base of the Democratic Party and concluded that they could see an erosion of working class white voters and still thrive as long as the white working class voted Democratic roughly 40 percent of the time. And for the next decade, Teixeira appeared to be right. Barack Obama won two dominant elections. Democrats passed a sweeping new health care law. But the erosion of the white working class showed up in 2016 in much bigger numbers than Teixeira expected. And something else was also happening. I want to listen to a sound clip of his in just a moment so we can hear him. Uh, Teixeira says it wasn't just a racial divide that was fueling national elections. He says that Democrats have not been willing to confront the shifting politics along class lines. In fact, he says the class divide is growing while the racial divide is not. Here's what he told Ezra Klein of The New York Times recently. So you look at 2020, even though Biden did manage to squeak through in that election, not nearly as big a victory as they thought they'd get, he managed to hold what white working class support they had, in fact, increase it a little bit. But what was really astonishing is the way Democrats lost non-white working class voters, particularly Hispanics. There was big, big declines in their margins among these voters, declines that we're still seeing today in the polling data. So one way to think about 2020 and where we are today is that racial polarization is declining, but class polarization, educational polarization is increasing. And that's a problem for a party like uh, the Democrats, which purports to be the party of the working class. Again, Teixeira says the evidence shows the racial divide is getting smaller, if be it by small margins, but it's the class divide that's getting larger. His new book is called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Teixeira writes that many college-educated Democrats are stunned to see Donald Trump doing better today with black and Latino voters than he did in 2016. College-educated Democrats feel like Donald Trump is so obviously bigoted that he couldn't possibly increase his support among voters of color. But Trump has. He did a bit better in 2020, and polls indicate he's doing better still in 2024, particularly among men of color and working-class men of color. That doesn't mean he'll win those categories, but Teixeira says Democrats have allowed Trump and Republicans to win the argument regarding who cares about working-class Americans. And yes, Teixeira writes about the culture wars and concludes that Democrats have been too obsessed with social and cultural issues to their detriment. One person who thinks about these issues a lot is my guest this hour. He has spent years in the labor movement, studies both policy and politics, and this hour we're discussing how he sees the rather stinging critique that Rui Teixeira offers the current Democratic Party. Colin O'Malley is the chief of staff for the Rochester Area Labor Federation. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for being with us here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, the, the first question I have is how we define working class. And Teixeira uses educational attainment as a primary definitional line for working class. Ezra Klein points out that in 2020, Donald Trump won voters who make more than $100,000 a year. Joe Biden won voters who make less than $100,000 a year. But Trump won overall non-college educated voters, while Biden won college educated voters. So it's not always easy to draw these straight lines. I wonder what's the right way in your mind to define working class? You know, I think, uh, I mean, the broad definition that I would always go with and who is working class are those folks that uh, if they're going to have a house to live in, if they're going to have food to eat, if they're going to have health care, have to actually sell their time to somebody who has significant money. Um, so they have to engage in labor. They have to engage in work uh, to ensure that they have all the things they need. There's a small number of people in this country that don't have to do those things, um, but they're pretty small. Okay. And one thing that I'm glad Teixeira seeks to do in his book is make sure that we are specific in what we're talking about because I suspect I've done this. I've tried to be mindful of it. But I think a lot of journalists, a lot of white journalists, when they say working class, they mean the white working class as opposed to the working class of Americans, which includes people of all backgrounds and of all struggles. Um, do you see that? happening the media sort of conflating working class with white working class yeah i mean i, th I think i see activists do it i think i see um media do it i think i see yeah i mean i think increasingly uh the conversation has become 
one of uh, a space that sort of divides uh, class out from a conversation of broader social justice, which I think is um, is a real failure of social justice movements. Um, but I also think uh, I, I think there's also a long history, and you know, the labor movement has has some shame on this too of um, representing what they will call the working class and doing a good job of only representing the white end of it. Um, in fact, a number of unions up until even the 60s and 70s expressly forbid uh, the entrance of black workers. Um, now, that's you, know, you, can, you can juxtapose that with unions that were marching alongside Martin Luther King, so it's not a simple uh, story, but, um, but I think it's one that's muddied enough that it, it makes it uh, complicated to try and pull those together today in a way that really should happen, because frankly, when we think of the working class, you know, the working class is a is a very broad range of folks. There are so when I, I have a hard time differentiating some of the social causes that he's talking about because there are uh, LGBT working class folks, there are women working class folks, there are people of color working class folks, um, and to me, they're all part of the family, right? Yeah, and and we'll talk about maybe um, those distinctions. Um, you know, Colin perhaps will agree or disagree with to share at points. I've got different sound to play, um, but. The book, I, I'm I'm mindful of the critique that, you know, is this just another book that confuses, um, oh, well, white working class resentment as opposed to just saying there's been a co-opting of large swaths of the country by conservative talk radio, right wing media, Donald Trump and a cult of personality. Like, I mean, all those it, it is a complex picture. I'm not sitting here saying, hey, Rui Teixeira had a lot to say in 2002. He was hailed for being sort of on the money there. And now he's not saying it's just class resentment. It's not just that. It is a very complex picture. And I don't want to reduce it to any one thing. So what I want to ask you kind of for a broad outline is, do you agree that there is too much focus, or not enough focus, I should say, on a class divide to the detriment of Teixeira says to the Democratic Party right now. Uh, certainly, I, I, I think uh, the uh, the political establishment in this country has made a great effort for generations now to pretend that there isn't a class divide in this country, um, and that's been an active and and really uh, uh, pushed line, frankly, from Republicans and Democrats both. Um, I'm wary in this particular moment to only lay blame at the Democrats um, because I do think the Republican Party is making a real effort to try and position themselves as the working class party, um, when frankly they have almost no basis for doing so. Um, Teixeira doesn't think there actually certainly. is any working class party. I, right I would argue that he is right on that and has been right on that for much longer than he would posit. Yeah, so, uh, and and we're talking about the major parties that have the power. I, I hope it's obvious. There's all kinds of different things we could talk about. And Colin O'Malley feels very strongly that the Democratic Party hasn't um, always represented working class values or maybe never in your lifetime. Um, yeah. I, I, so, enough. Yeah. I mean, my my first political memory is Bill Clinton destroying welfare while I was on it. That's that's my. So when while we talk about while while my family was on welfare, Bill Clinton effectively destroyed it um, and chopped it up into dozens of different programs, one of which was welfare to work, uh, where my mother then went to work at McDonald's to earn her welfare benefits that barely covered the child care she was then required to pay for. Um that's a Bill Clinton policy. That wasn't <laughs> that wasn't the Republican Party. So uh, when when particularly, you know, millennial and younger activists uh, don't see benefit or don't connect to the Democratic Party as a as a party of the working class, I I understand and agree with them. Um, I, I, I what I say, because and this is why I'm, I'm very reluctant to say that in this moment, because we do live in an electoral system, in a legislative system that effectively forces a two-party system. And I worry that people would would go vote Republican thinking that somehow that's better um, or fall for the Trump line that, that's the, that they're the working class party as if being represented by a billionaire who repeatedly has screwed over his own workers, let alone uh, the rest of America. Uh, I would hate for people to think that that's an alternative. It's not. Yeah. And, and that's... Uh... Listeners, I hope, understand we'll have multiple conversations around these sort of outlines, these broad themes. Today's conversation 
is about the Teixeira book because Teixeira is rooting for the Democrats to be the party that he thinks they still can be. He's open about that. He's essentially a Democratic pollster and political scientist who's had a lot to say for several decades about this. I want to listen to what he said about the Obama election, the re-election in 2012. We've got a piece of sound on that. I think we've got that, um, Megan Mack, the the Obama. It might be the—okay. So— there's a reason I want to play the sound. He's talking to Ezra Klein of the New York Times, and he says that um, that certainly racism is part of what has driven sort of the post-Obama reaction and um, and the, the the exodus of white working class voters away from Democrats. But he said it's not the only thing, and he said a lot of people assume that well Obama didn't get white working class votes, but he won with a different coalition. And Teixeira says the numbers show that Obama did better with the white working class than the successor candidates in 2016 and 2020. And he thinks a lot of that's because of how Obama and his team reacted to, you know, the financial crisis, what was perceived as help for the automakers, et cetera. Let's listen to some of that. 2012, Obama manages to get reelected. And, you know, that was viewed or characterized as uh, the return of the Obama coalition. But the part of the Obama coalition they missed is he ran a kind of populist campaign against the plutocrat Mitt Romney running on the auto bailout and other things like that. And he really managed to grab back a lot of those white working class voters in the upper Midwest. And if he hadn't done that, he would have lost that election. Do you agree with that? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, uh, in some ways, I think this is the failing of American politics here that we talk a lot more about who can pragmatically pull together a coalition of electoral victory rather than who can pass proposals and policies that matter. Um, But yeah, I do. I I agree with that basic sentiment. Um, I also think it's worth pointing out, though, that, um, you know, the Barack Obama made pretty clear to the Democratic Leadership Council, the sort of I guess, right-wing economic faction of the Democratic Party, that he was one of them. Uh, He made very clear in 2008, he went to uh, a meeting of the New Democrat Coalition and expressly said to them, I am a New Democrat. Uh, And what he means by that and what what, uh, that signals to the party is that he is on the right-wing economic faction of the party. Um, He also signaled that pretty clearly by making Rahm Emanuel his chief of staff. So um, I think there are a number of things that Barack Obama did that were um, that were good, but he certainly didn't change the transition of the party that really started with Bill Clinton in completely abandoning working class politics. It, it is interesting that Teixeira points out that Mitt Romney was framed by Obama as a plutocrat, as a Bain capital. You know, all of his ties to the corporations are people soundbite. There's plenty of Democrats today who would vote for Mitt Romney tomorrow out of a desperation act to sort of save what they feel like is a real disastrous election coming up here. And the view of Romney has evolved among many, probably many listeners on this program right now. But that election was framed as sort of the executive class, the business class, and Obama trying to carry the mantle of the working class. What what I think I hear you saying is he campaigned effectively to do that, but his eight years of policies reflect what? Uh, well, let me give a let me give one just concrete example. Um, the the Democratic supermajority that uh, that Barack Obama had under under uh, for a couple of years had the ability to pass the Employee Free Choice Act. The Employee Free Choice Act would have completely rewritten the uh, way that uh, uh, workers get get and organize and get into unions in this country in a way that would have neutralized a great deal of. Uh, vicious anti-union activity that employers will often put on them. Uh, it would have meaningfully meant the establishment of significant worker power in terms of their own institutions, their own organizations that was independent from government and from political parties. Um, they had the supermajority. They had, in fact, a winning co- a winning number of representatives co-sponsoring the bill who had happily accepted AFL-CIO political donations for decades saying they supported the bill. The second it became winnable, suddenly they had some questions. Suddenly they weren't so sure. And if you look at a lot of the people that were unsure, um, they were accepting, you know, labor contributions and big corporate contributions hand in hand. Um, they could have completely rewritten uh, the ability of the working class in this country to me- meaningfully build power in 2008, and they completely failed in that moment. Why? Why is the the right wing critique that Barack Obama tried to enter into a, a socialist revolution then, Colin? Uh, 
Because the right wing in this country has used red baiting uh, as their primary fear tactic alongside uh, race mongering, fear mongering, right? Um, th- these are their primary tactics and they've, they worked in the 40s and so they continue to try it today. Um, and unfortunately, they're, they're effective with some number of people. Well, the, the, the part of this story that is the strangest to me and continues to be bizarre to me is that the Republican Party of today really doesn't resemble a whole lot of the Republican Party that ran under Romney. They revile Romney. And I could I could understand intellectually an electorate backlash to two major parties that are not perceived as interested in the working class and supporting workers. But to go from to go from, hey, you know, we, we're going to nom- nominate Romney to no, we actually hate Romney. He's part of the executive class. He's not one of us to Donald Trump, a billionaire who was already famous, but was made more famous by firing people on television, gleefully laughing about it, you know, stiffing workers, not paying full contracts to, to I mean, I've talked to people talking about the working class who doesn't get paid by the guy. That becomes the avatar. That makes it hard to believe that this really is purely a working class movement to me. What do you Certainly. Think? Well, and, and actually, I think this is one of the failings of the Democratic and liberal sort of coalition post-election of Donald Trump is that many of them jumped to blaming the white working class before looking at the numbers and finding that, in fact, uh, uh, Donald Trump won wealthy white people. He didn't win poor white people. Um, and so I think that that immediate reaction of looking at like poor white folks in this country and saying, actually, you were the problem here, um, missed the mark by miles. Uh, there are... Um, the, the, there are in fact large chunks of like fairly large business owning, uh, and down to small business owning, but millionaire and hundred thousand up sort of, uh, white people that did certainly vote for Donald Trump. Um, there's a whole business coalition that happily jumped on board with him. Um, and then a certain number of people that I think were sort of conned into believing that this millionaire billionaire actually has their interests at heart, which, uh, you know, to me, if I see a Donald Trump bumper sticker, I'm I'm always amazed that they're not perpetually the con the the, the victims of other cons because uh, you're basically wearing a sign. Talking to Colin O'Malley, who is the chief of staff for the Rochester Area Labor Federation, and talking about some of the the formulations in a new book from political scientist Rui Teixeira, whose 2002 book on the New Democratic Majority was a seminal work in that decade. His new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? looks at why the Democrats have not been able to sustain victories and have to win close. And, and, and I want to get to one other point he makes in his conversation with Ezra Klein about where he thinks the Democrats have limited themselves and why he thinks they continue to struggle and, and are at risk of losing the presidential election coming up and, and are uh, at risk of, of losing the Senate and more here. So this is Rui Teixeira talking to The New York Times' Ezra Klein. Fast forward to the 21st century Democrats, I think, embrace what we call in the second part of the book this more of a cultural radicalism where views on immigration, race, crime, gender, and so on actually become quite a bit more left than they were. And they become the conventional wisdom of the Democratic Party and out of the wheelhouse of a lot of working class voters, which again accentuates this great divide we talked about in the first part of our our book. So I think all of these things move the Democrats in the direction of becoming what Thomas Piketty and his colleagues have called a Brahmin left party, which is actually very common if you look across Western industrial societies. The mass parties of the left have shed working class support and gained support among more educated and professional strata of the society and have become more defined by their support among those groups. So in a way, the great divide is all about, well, how did we get to the point where Democrats are no longer the party of the working class in a strict quantitative sense? And they are really more a party that's dominated by professionals and educated elites. How did they become a Brahmin left party? And what does that do to their potential for having a dominant majority coalition? Our view is that it puts pretty serious limits on that. Doesn't mean they can't win elections, they do, but it does mean they're, they have a lot of difficulty breaking through their ceiling and becoming a truly dominant party again. Right, so there's a lot there. He is calling the, the, the current form of the Democratic Party in this country a Brahmin left party that really caters to the preference on social and cultural issues as opposed to the working class and says that 
the social and cultural issues that have become the obsession among college-educated Democrats are not really issues that the working class want to talk about, want to champion, want to focus on, and don't affect their lives. And that's to the detriment of the Democratic Party. Agree or disagree? Uh, it's too complicated for one okay, of those Okay, answers. so let's talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, but I will... Um, I do think that the site, the style of... Uh, some of the cultural topics that have been chosen to for Democrats to really highlight have tended towards those that um, are more felt by the upper middle class to wealthy versions of those social groupings. So, you know, I, I think that most LGBT working class people um, tend to uh, see the importance of all of those cultural issues to their lives. Um, I think they also would find it valuable to be able, like, if I can't afford a home, I can't fly a pride flag from it. If I can't afford health care, how does any of this work out in the first place? So I do think that the these aren't necessarily competitive notions, but that in the utter failure of both parties to meaningfully address actual material conditions on the day-to-day lives of people around them, um, they have uh, encouraged um, people to move away from them. Um, and sometimes people move back and forth between the Republican and the Democratic Party, waiting for one to sort of represent and fix the problems that they see in their day to day lives. Um, sometimes they move just outside of those. I mean, we used to think of independent voters as in the middle. Increasingly, we understand they're on the farther left and farther right. Um, that's not shocking to me when um, in many ways it's abundantly clear that the status quo, the status quo is failing. Um, if we look at the climate crisis, if we look at people's ability to afford housing, if we look at people's ability to afford health care and food, um, if we look at just baseline global security and the ability and like knowing that there won't be new wars popping up at any given moment, um, you know, those things are not being meaningfully answered by either party, um, which is going to drive people away from them. Yeah. Teixeira talks about climate. He talks about social issues. I think what I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is those are issues that people in large numbers can and will care about. But absent an ability to actually make a living and take care of themselves and their families, it's, number one, asking a lot of them to, as you say, either fly a pride flag or invest in climate action, et cetera. And then beyond that, you risk caricature, which the Republicans and conservatives have caricatured the left as, only caring about these social issues when people are struggling and can't be their families. So, so I think that's I think that's what I'm hearing from you. I don't know yeah. if th- there may be some dissonance with if to share we're here to argue the point, but um, I don't hear you saying those issues don't matter. Of course not. They matter. They're just it, it's hard to, if the working class issues are not also addressed effectively. Yeah, I mean, let me let me maybe uh, say it this way. I think that positing the idea that challenging racism and homophobia and uh, and you know all of the the various sort of isms that that plague a lot of people's day-to-day lives um, positing that against the idea of focusing on class and material needs of everyday people um, is actually a trumpian sort of version of the story um, I actually think it helps promote the idea that there is this white working class out there and they're just waiting to have their day-to-day bread and butter needs addressed by somebody and they're tired of talking about these other issues that they don't understand and don't care to understand. So I think when we frame it that way, we're actually helping build the perspective of the Republican Party as a working class party. Um, It's not. It never has been. It doesn't intend to be anytime soon. If you look at how they vote, it's laughable to think that they would ever be so. Um, So I, I think framing these as oppositional is actually the problem. Hmm. Uh, let me get a couple of phone calls here. Frank in Greece has been waiting. Hey, Frank, go ahead. Hello. Thank you. Uh, we started this conversation by talking about how black and Hispanic voters are, are switching over to Trump. It reminds me of what a Black Panther once told me upon, upon the death of um, Martin Luther King. He said he, he didn't care about nonviolence. America is an inherently violent society. Violence is, is as American as apple pie. And I see that today in the rhetoric and the language and the tone of Donald Trump and many Republicans. And I think there's also a great deal of self-delusion along with that devi- uh, violence 
far too many white Americans, and I am a white Irish Catholic working class American, believe some sort of silly nonsense that someday I will be a millionaire and someday I will benefit from that upper class tax cut. It, it, it's delusion. And um, I don't know what else to say to your guests, but Erin Gobra. Frank, thank you for the phone call. Anything you want to add there, Colin? Chucky Arla. Um, yeah, I, I would, um, I would, I would agree. I, you know, I, I really, um, I, I think, I, I think one of the things that's important to point out, right, is that it is, it is just actually very difficult um, for either political party, particularly when they rely on massive donations to win an election, um, to challenge the economic well-being of the people that are, frankly, making the vast majority of money in this in this country and making it on the backs of working people. Um, that's a more difficult th- task to take on, and I'm not surprised that politicians have avoided it. Listener writes to say, Evan, honestly, if Republicans are so racist, why are African Americans and Hispanics moving towards them? Because they're stupid? First of all, the the vast likelihood is that Joe Biden will win if if, the, if it's Biden and Trump again. Again, long way to go for that. Uh that Joe Biden will win those categories of voters. It is true that Donald Trump is doing marginally better with black voters and mostly fueled by an increase in support among black men uh, and Hispanic voters. It is also true that they still vote more Democratic than Republican, although, I mean, Hispanic as a category, I think we've been cautioned very fairly not to be too monolithic here. It's complex. I don't I want to recognize that uh, as I was recently fairly lectured by a guest that Cubans in Florida are not the same as, you know, pick any category in Texas and et cetera, et cetera. So I I get it. But the point that the caller is making is he'd love to hear Colin talk about why are voters of color apparently based on the polls poised to vote in larger numbers for Trump eight years after he first ran for president. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to speak for voters of color, right? My name's Colin O'Malley, um, What's so there? it would be a little stretch for me to do so. But I, I will speak for 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 me and a lot of the people I know that um, we are all looking for meaningful alternatives to a political process that seems designed to throw up fairly poor contenders every time for the presidential race. That seems fairly designed to you know who's going to win the congressional race. I don't have to. There's not a meaningful debate about it. There's not a meaningful discussion about it in most congressional places in this country. We know who's going to win already. Um, I think the democratic process in this country is so flawed and so broken um, that people look for strategies to find answers to their questions that are that are frankly uh, really creative in a lot of ways. Um, and sometimes I do think, I mean, I think it would be absurd to think of monoliths in any group. There are conservative black folks. There are conservative Latinos. There are like... Um, it's, you know, they're, they might be finding a political home under the sort of Trumpian ideology. That to me does not negate the fact that white supremacists around the country have also made a real point of finding a home within the Trumpian movement and have intentionally built their organizations around supporting him and use rallies, uh, uh, for, for Trump and for the MAGA world as a recruiting ground for their explicitly fascist white supremacist organizations. Um, those things you know, can coexist. Uh, Mark Johns on the line. I'll take Mark's call, former member of the New York State Assembly, member of the Monroe County Legislature. Hi, Mark. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning, Do- uh, Evan and Colin. Good morning, afternoon, Colin. sir. Oh, good there afternoon. you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, uh, I just wanted to bring up two points. There were two people running for president in 2016 who said raise taxes on the rich. One of them was Bernie Sanders. The other was uh, Donald Trump. And it's a populist idea, raising taxes on the rich, balancing the budget, saving Social Security. Trump said he was for it. Bernie said he was for it. Fast forward to what we had a couple of years ago, the IRA, which is uh, uh, what they uh, call the um, Inflation Reduction Act. You don't spend trillions more dollars and get inflation reduction. But one of the... One of the components of that bill was to raise taxes on the Wall Street guys, the hedge funds. Um, 
Are you guys familiar with the carried interest concept? I don't know. A lot of people aren't. But what the, what it says is that if you're throwing dice on Wall Street and making millions and billions of dollars, you only pay a capital gains tax. And that is not a working class person that's doing that, right? So you pay 15 percent in capital gains where the average American that's out there working is paying 20, 22 plus another 8 percent in FICA tax, right? So they're paying an income tax of a re- effectively 30% while the hedge fund billionaires are paying 15%. That was in the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, what do you know? Not one senator in in Washington tried to take uh, or tried to keep that in the bill. You remember Kristen Cinema from uh Arizona, she wanted to get rid of it, Joe Manchin, uh Chuck Schumer You've had people on your show, Evan, that have talked about the fact that Chuck Schumer gets more money from Wall Street than anyone. He didn't keep it in the bill. It was effectively taken out. The tax breaks for the rich hedge hedge fund investors down on Wall Street never increased, right? Both parties in there together, a vow of silence from the Republicans, a repudiation by a bunch of Democrats, that aspect of the bill got kicked out, increasing taxes on the rich. Once again, the big lobbyists are the ones that write the tax bills, right? And they don't have to worry about whether the budgets are balanced, if we ever pay off the debt, because Social Security for them is just some gravy on the mashed potatoes, right? They got everything they need. They don't have to worry about things like Social Security pensions. So, when the number one goal of these rich career politicians is just to get money from special interests and to get reelected, 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 that's why you get gerrymandered districts. That's why you get big money funding the campaigns, get what they want in the end. And as I've said a million times, all the reforms start with term limits, independent redistricting, real campaign finance reform. So just in case Colin or Evan or anybody else wants to run, they have enough money to run and get the message out without going to the hedge fund billionaires and others down on Wall Street or whatever to get your money to fund your campaign. And then your campaign owes them, uh, you know, pay to play. You owe them favors of the future. Well, Mark, I always appreciate hearing from you Um, uh, a lot there. Colin O'Malley. I mean, I think the first thing to respond to is just the fact of the matter that, yes, Biden and Trump both said they were going to cut taxes on the wealthy uh, or I'm sorry, raise taxes on the wealthy um, and then Trump cut them. So, uh, you know, he's he's a con man. We should know this by now. That's abundantly clear. Um, I actually think Bernie would have raised taxes on the wealthy. Uh, I think his his career record shows that Um, or at least would have tried to. Maybe it wouldn't have gotten through Congress. Right. but I think I think the overall the overall point and, and you know Mark I know has talked a lot about term limits I think that that's one of many 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 reforms that our electoral system would need to be functionally democratic anymore. Um, the first past the post sort of uh, election process sort of drags you to two parties. Any anywhere in the world that has that tends to have two major parties and some side little parties that can't really get a seat at the table. Um, so I think things like runoff uh, voting is, is, is a way to do that. Um, some places have actually multi-seat constituencies. I think, you know, uh, where, where you would have a district that actually had three or four representatives, because really if, if 52% of a district votes democratic, 40% of it votes Republican and 2% of it votes green, right? Like is the Democrat representative of that district? Not really. That's sort of not true either. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, the 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 wealthy 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 in this country right like they don't they don't wait for the republican and 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 or democratic parties to be their savior they're not hoping for that to happen and i think the working class in this country should think the same way um we should be building our own organizations um you know uh, i think if you can't pay rent i don't know that the legislature is going to do anything about that anytime soon but i know if you and your tenants get to you and other tenants of the same landlord get together and demand lowering in rent and if you don't get it go on rent strike like I, you have substantial power in collective actions, just like workers do, just like uh, 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 folks all over the world do. So I think that kind of collective action um, and organi- independent organization building from the political party process is critical to what we do. I think it's why I, I focus on the fact that we need tens of thousands of more union members to, to 
you know, I, I, I think a union at Amazon, for instance, will do a much better job of bringing Jeff Bezos's obscene wealth into heel than uh, than just passing some legislation. After we take this only break, we're going to talk to Colin O'Malley a little bit more about policy prescriptions, ideas that might actually tangibly change things for American workers. And I want to respond to some more some more listener feedback, phone calls, and emails we've been getting. Colin is the chief of staff for the Rochester Area Labor Federation. We're right back with him after this short break. I'm Evan Dawson. Thursday on The Next Connections, Assemblymember Marjorie Burns joins us in the first hour. The Republican talks about her priorities for 2024. In our second hour, we sit down with retired OBGYN Dr. Victor Polishuk. He came to practice before abortion was legal nationally. He has seen the evolution of the debate, and he has a lot to share. Talk with you Thursday. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Listener named Tom writes and directs me to a new book that's coming out this month by Rob Henderson. Uh, Rob wrote a book called Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. So it's coming out later this month, uh, next week, in fact. And part of it was just excerpted in the Wall Street Journal under the title, Luxury Beliefs That Only the Privileged Can Afford. Rob writes, at Yale, I saw that extreme views on drugs, marriage, and crime served as status symbols. He goes on to write, take vocabulary. Your typical working class American couldn't tell you what heteronormative or cisgender means. Only the affluent can afford to learn this vocabulary. Ordinary people have real problems to worry about, end quote. How do you see that, Colin? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the minimizing of people's experience, right? Like the the vast majority of trans people in this country are actually quite poor, um, are actually uh, themselves struggling financially very difficultly, um, and in fact are are often the victims of crime and violent crime in a way that the vast majority of people aren't. So I do, in fact, think it's important that we stand alongside trans brothers and sisters to 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 stand with them in meaningful solidarity. I I agree though that the hyperfixation and focus on language and the requiring everyone to speak at a certain space has an elitist uh, uh, methodology to it. Um, so, uh, you know, I do think we should be we should be wary of and careful of uh, those sort of like puritanical expectations of language um, while simultaneously helping people in our community get it that don't. Um, so th- th- it's a sort of both and, I think. I want to read Rob's book. I mean, from the excerpts, it, it, it looks to me like part of his point is if your party's base is primarily college educated who have not had working class struggle experience in their own lives, then they are not going to be very attuned to what it means to meaningfully affect policy and change for people who are struggling. And they may become more fixated on social and cultural issues to the exclusion of lunch pail issues. So I, I'll, I'll read the book first before we talk more about that. Uh, but I will say this on the culture wars. Yesterday, Democrats beat Republicans in the special election for George Santos's vacated congressional seat. I want to read some analysis from Ryan James Gurdusky. He's the author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. Here's his analysis of Republicans who are confused about the loss yesterday. Quote, Republicans are looking at the results recently in Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, and New York and saying, what's going on? Why are we performing so badly? We lost high propensity, mostly college-educated white voters. We gained lots of low-propensity voters who don't show up. And the weirdness around conservative culture is only making people run away from us. Taylor Swift is a CIA plant. The election was stolen. Arrest women for having abortions. That's what we're talking about? It's hurting up and down the ballot almost everywhere we go. And the fact that low-propensity voters won't vote early because they believe in nonsensical conspiracies about voting machines means that we can't make up for it with Election Day turnout. It's happening everywhere. It could happen in November. People need to be aware. But it wasn't any one specific thing. It's all the things. Republicans like me are just looking increasingly weird to people who vote all the time. End quote. That's from Ryan James Gradusky. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think uh, as as politics gets polarized, right, um, increasingly it's easier and easier to like speak languages that just don't make sense to one another, and and frankly put forward proposals and propositions that don't make sense to the vast majority of people. Um, 
you know, I'm, I don't think anybody would ever think that I'm not fairly far on the left. Um, I, I'll, I'll own that I think the left has actually done a very poor job of communicating their positions in a way that most folks understand, in a way that brings people in um, to meaningfully build organization. Um, and I'm actually very happy to see the far right making a bunch of those same failures. Uh, and one other, before I get back to your phone calls, an email, uh, oh boy, I think it was Matt, wanted to know uh, what your guest thinks about some of the labor victories of the last year. So we've talked about UAW, among others. Um, what do you make of the last year in labor? Yeah, I mean, look, labor is ascendant in many ways right now. Uh, hundreds of thousands of more members in unions. Um, it's too slow. I mean, we need millions more in unions. Um, but I think I think a lot of this is happening because people see uh, an answer to their immediate, actual, lived, material experiences. Um, and so so those those growths are, are really important. Um, I, I also think they, they raise some interesting, you know, difficulties in the world of, you know, are, are Democrats sort of doing good by workers, right? Um, Biden marched on the UAW picket line. That's that's a historic first. That's a big deal. Um, they've done, you know, uh, Obama did really meaningful work in keeping and bailing out auto uh, businesses on the understanding that jobs would stay in the United States on that. Um, at the same time, Biden, who in many ways is, yeah, I, he says he's the most labor-friendly uh, president ever. I'll give him that he's probably the most labor-friendly president in my lifetime. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and the labor relations board chair that he chose, uh, the general counsel is, is actually, I think, very worker friendly in a bunch of ways and has helped lead to a spike in unionization efforts. Um, at the same time, he and the democratic party led, uh, a, a crushing of a potential railroad strike and forcing workers to work under contract that they did not support. Um, that to me is a red line. Uh, that's a massive red line. If, if any other president had done that, we would have been lambasting them for the next 20 years. Um, I understand why the current labor world doesn't do that, because frankly, we and I think the rest of America should be terrified of what it means if we reelect Trump. A hmm. uh, couple phone calls, Jane in Rochester and then Keith. Hey, Jane, go ahead. Uh, yes, Evan. Uh, my mind's going off in a lot of directions here, but I used to have a poster back in the 70s, and it went like this. Nixon has taken crime out of the streets and put it in the White House where it belongs. And that was a, a guy on, you know, running on law and order. He needs to clean up his own house first. It was so corrupt. But I know growing up through all that, uh, one thing that affected the Democrats a lot was the assassinations and the use of violence, whether it was uh, JFK murdered or uh, Bobby Kennedy, Martin King, uh, the, uh, I'm trying to think of who they were, but there were just a lot of, when we would get someone competent and committed to serving the country, it seemed like something violent happened to them. And Richard Nixon pulled a lot of people in with that so-called Southern strategy. So maybe Leighton Biggest uh, became, they wanted the status of saying, I'm a Republican, and I'm so tired of them being more or less a one-issue party taxes. And it's, it's just absurd to me how often two minutes into a conversation, wealthy people are crying about, Texas, when we have had and probably still have veterans sleeping under bridges. The, and, and I agree that the, the Democrats have, I don't know if we, if we lost a lot of encouragement or what, but I remember Kent State, uh, it was said that uh, uh, Kent State broke the back of the protest movement, but the assassination of Bobby Kennedy broke its heart and you have to go through all of that and and the confusion but but i agree with people that say ronald reagan made incompetence fashionable i guess but i'm very discouraged with the uh, people that get in and then they become another person i was disappointed with obama you know and he he i have a, a cd here Michael Moore of uh, that includes uh, Flint, Michigan, and how he spoke at Flint, Michigan, uh, drinking water and tastes all right to me. 
and he really let let the people down in Flint that thought that he would tell some truth to people. And it's that kind of thing, you know, you think you've got somebody with some backbone, and we've got them. We've got them in the, in the party, but they will never be elected. People like Bernie Sanders. Well, do you want Joe Biden to be the nominee this year, Jane? Uh, I want us to have the very best nominee that we can get. Uh, I, I, I don't know if it would be politically disastrous if we changed in the middle of the stream like that. I, I think it's a little late. We had other people that were trying to get in there, and I don't know. I really don't know. I just have to say, yeah. I just hope that the powers that be in the Democratic Party uh, know a whole lot more than I know. <laughs> so I hope they do, because and that they're doing the best thing. But, yeah, I will vote Democrat no matter who it is. I can't I can't take these people that really seem to want to destroy the country as yeah. long as they get what they want. But thank you, Evan. Yeah, Jane, thank you. And look, uh, Jane's not wrong that in the American context of elections, changing now for either party would be late. Well, I mean, the Republicans are ostensibly running a primary. Uh, it would be late only in the American context. In the rest of the world, with nine months to go, it would be early. For what it's worth. Do you want to see a change? Jane's, Jane is discouraged by the leaders she has seen of all stripes. Do you want to see a change even before this election? I mean, I, I have a hard time believing that many people when asked, are these really the two best people you think we could put up on a pedestal for president would say yes. Um, you know, uh, you know, the, the failings of our political system have led us to this path. And I, I think, you know, simple answers like changing the person is I, I actually just don't think the answer um, I think it's much more complicated than that. You know, at the end of the day, uh, I will say, you know, I mean, my politics probably for, fall more inclined with like Cornell West. You know, I live in New York State. I might even be able to get away with voting for Cornell West. If I lived in Ohio, I'd be voting for Biden. If I lived in Pennsylvania, I'd be voting for Biden. Um, you know, uh, and I and I and I wouldn't be super happy about it, but I would do it because I think stopping Trump is critical. Um, and this is the trap we fall for every time. This is the trap we fall into every time because of the sort of broken structure of it all. All right, Keith, got to keep it tight. Go ahead, sir. Uh, real quick, no, nothing will change. If, if, if you want things to change, you got to start at the bottom. One would be universal health care in this country where everybody gets the same health care from birth straight on to death. Amen. You need non-compete should be eliminated because it stifles innovation. Look what the governor did in New York State by not signing the bill that the legislature had passed. There's and term limits. You need to stop politicians from getting reelected because they don't do what's best for the American people. They do what's best for them to get reelected, whether it's good or bad. And Lindsey Graham, the guy's the biggest hypocrite out there. But he's got to say what he has to say to maintain his job, not to help his constituents. But it's not going to change. So you can have all your guests in the world come on. Nothing will change. Uh, Keith, I, I understand the cynicism or the realism, perhaps, in, in your voice there. But I'm not so nihilistic. I think change is hard. And whatever direction that you want the change to be is hard, but not impossible. This country has done things that are hard, and it's not impossible in the future. Again, not advocating for any single position. I'm just saying uh, inertia doesn't always have to win. Now, having said that, last few minutes, Keith brings up universal health care. A party that, whether it's the Republicans, whether it's the Democrats, people in power, a party that cares about the working class in ways that are tangible and authentic, what are some of the policies and changes that you would would want to look for? Okay, we're going to say me as Colin O'Malley and not me as my job. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Me as my job has to talk to many different union leaders and find a consensus among them, and they don't always have consensus. Um, but but if you're asking me, yeah, I think I think guaranteeing real health care to people. You should be able to go to the hospital and not worry about whether or not you're going to go bankrupt. That's, that's nuts. You should be able to afford a place to live. Uh, I do think... Uh, you should be able to afford a meaningful education, whether that's higher or not. 
Um, or, and frankly, there should be a path to more and more people directly into um, construction trades. I think we have a huge infrastructure problem in this country, not nearly enough workers for it. And if you work a job at all, you should make a reasonable and decent wage for that that allows you to cover all your basic needs, have a vacation every now and again, have, you know, like have a nice life. And, I, and there's no reason that that money doesn't exist. Um, there's plenty of it. There's plenty of it. Uh, companies are profiting in the tr- billions um, and just handing it to like hedge fund manager friends. So so uh, I think there's a lot of things like that that we could look for. And and at the end of the day, I, I'll, I'll actually agree with the last caller that I think if we're waiting for either political party to be our saviors, nothing will change. Um, and so I think one of the major pol- policy prescriptions needs to be something like the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act that would allow, that would totally rewrite union organizing in this country, much like the Employee Free Choice Act would have. Because I think if we have 30, 40, 50 percent unionization rates in this country rather than 10, 12, um, I think that will yield massive results that, that whoever you vote for this year won't. So in our last 30 seconds, you said earlier that there has been a surge in union interest in some of the numbers, but the, the overall numbers don't come close to where we were 40 years ago with unionization in this country. What's a realistic 2024 look like for you? 30 seconds. Uh, I, I mean, I think I think taking on and winning some of these fights and, and getting rid of the idea that there are good progressive companies out there that are changing everything, right? Trader Joe's, in response to a few workers organizing a union within their space, are trying to get rid of... They're, they're challenging the constitutionality of the Labor Relations Act and trying to get rid of everyone's right to have a union, not even just their own workers. Um, so I think, you know, everyday people need to organize and change that. And that's what we need to do. Thank you for making time. Thank you. That's Colin O'Malley. He's the chief of staff for the Rochester Area Labor Federation. His views today are his own. Um, as he says at the end here, doing a lot of work and pulling a lot of threads together. And we'll continue to have these conversations. You want to check out in our show notes, we'll link to the conversation that political scientist Rui Teixeira had with Ezra Klein that prompt my interest here, or to his new book. And we'll continue to do this here uh, for the rest of the team here. It's Rob Braden, Megan Mack, Evan Dawson saying thank you for listening. Have a great afternoon. We'll talk to you tomorrow on Member Supported Public Radio.